0: Most pictures came down from the Hubble. Uh, probably somebody at the Space Telescope Science Institute had looked over them just to make sure that they, they looked halfway decent and uh, they're sent through this automated pipeline of, of processing on the computers and sent on to us. So when I looked at them, I was, if not the very first person to lay eyes on them, I was the first person to look at them in any detail and you're seeing things that nobody else has seen before. These are these deep uh, uh, images: these long exposures of a you know some random little corner of the cosmos, and to realize that all of these little blobs here and there are galaxies, which each of which may contain half a trillion stars, perhaps. All the stars and all the planets that are on those if there is life even you know alien bacteria or something like that uh, if there is anything else out there you're looking at a few pixels across that contain all of that in it and you're the only person in the world who may have seen that and it's just this it's it gives you chills you know your your hair stands on in sometimes Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse shows his handiwork. This is Good Heavens, a podcast taking a deeper look at the glory of God reflected in the stars above us. Here is your host,
1: Daniel Ray. On the morning of April 24, 1990, just after 8.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, The massive engines of the space shuttle Discovery roared to life. A chariot of fire blazing upward toward the heavens on an enormous volcanic cloud of smoke and numinous flame. Discovery weighed just under a quarter million pounds at launch. STS mission number 31 cost upwards of $1.5 billion. Its precious cargo the Hubble Space Telescope. T-minus 10, go for main engine start. We are go for main engine start. T-minus 6, 5, 4,
0: 3, 2, 1, and liftoff of the Space Shuttle
1: Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe.
0: discovery.
1: This historic launch is a fitting example of what the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, truly means. Heavy, weighty, and full of renown. And the Hubble Space Telescope is perhaps the world's most well-known eye on the heavens. Once in orbit some 340 miles above the Earth, after several costly repairs were done to correct a significant problem with Hubble's main mirror, The telescope truly opened our eyes to the cosmos in ways no one could have imagined. The telescope's never-before-seen panoramas of the universe have been and continue to be nothing short of breathtakingly awe-inspiring. When astronomers and astrophysicists study the universe, they soon find themselves running out of appropriate adjectives to describe their discoveries. Massive, supermassive, huge, large, enormous, ultra, extreme, deep, strange, unusual, mysterious. At some point, the stargazer finally finds himself at a loss for words. As Psalm 19 proclaims, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, And the skies show forth his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. But there are finally no words. Their speech is not an audible one. The heavens speak to us in a silent language, continuously declaring God's glory to us. This two-part episode is a first for good heavens, as we will be talking with an astrophysicist who recently made an exciting and unusual discovery from one of Hubble's many images of the deepest regions of the cosmos. Dr. Tim Hamilton is our guest on this episode. He is a professor of physics at Shawnee State University in Portsmouth, Ohio, where he teaches and runs the school's planetarium. Tim majored in physics at Rhodes College in 1994, and earned his Ph.D. in astrophysics at the University of Pittsburgh in 2001. While a grad student, he did his research at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. And after graduation, Tim spent two years as a National Research Council postdoc at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, where he worked in the laboratory for high-energy astrophysics. Recently, while studying quasars, Tim found an unusually shaped object in one of the photographs and decided to follow up on it, the image pictured in the podcast notes. I had a delightful discussion with Tim about science, faith, discovery, and the wonders of the created world. As the psalmist writes, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. And as the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, creator of the heavens and the earth, came down into our world and gave himself as the ultimate gift for us. He was crucified, buried, and miraculously resurrected on the third day and ascended through and far above the heavens he himself had created. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And as we will hear in today's conversation, science is by no means a threat to our confession of Jesus as Lord and creator of the universe. He has not only created the heavens, he has passed through them and far above them. His fingerprints are everywhere. On this episode, Tim and I discuss science, miracles, and how faith in Christ and cutting edge astrophysics go hand in hand. Tim has worked closely with another Christian astrophysicist who processes much of the imagery from Hubble's cameras, a gentleman with whom I've had the unique pleasure and privilege of briefly working, Dr. Anton Kokomoer. Dr. Kokomower came to Texas in 2018 to give a talk at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary about his work with the Hubble Space Telescope. The audience was pin drop silent as he presented many of Hubble's most stunning mosaics of the cosmos. It was this delightful event that inspired our book, The Story of the Cosmos How the Heavens Declare the Glory of God. As we began our conversation, Tim shares how his recent discovery will soon be published in a paper with Dr. Kokomore. Tim Hamilton.
0: I work with him. We've got, um, we've had a paper out just in the last year or so together, in fact. And uh, in fact, we're working on this um, uh, weird galaxy gravitational lens. He's on this paper as well. Uh, he, it was in um, one of the uh, Hubble images that uh, he and I and another colleague of ours had uh, had put in and came down. And when uh, when I found the thing.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, Anton was in my car. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. a couple of years ago we picked him up i remember you mentioning that back when we had uh, yeah.
0: first met online and yeah. you had you had asked if i had known him then yeah uh-huh.
1: and uh he came to texas to do a presentation about his work and uh i picked him up at the airport and uh he, he, he's he's we have a wonderful conversation and so he asked me about the age question and i says and i listened to what he said and i i kind of fall where he's at he's like you know when i look through the telescope, the universe looks much older. When I look in the Bible, it seems to be, it, it could be younger, but I, he's like not, he said, he, coming over from Australia, he'd never really encountered this age question being as divisive as it is for Christians.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, Anton, by the way, was the uh, one who had first told me about the, uh, there's a Christian astronomers group, mm-hmm. um, mostly, you know, meets by email <laughs> uh, during the year, but then we get together every uh Uh, every uh, meeting of the American astronomical society and have a lunch and presentations and so on. And uh, he was the one who had told me about that for the first time.
1: That's wonderful. Uh, Well, he, he he was the primary, that, that event he came to in Texas was the primary inspiration for our book that I've shared with you. Uh, Yeah. Uh, We, yes, we quote him from another article. He was going to contribute, but his busy, crazy life as it was, he
0: um, he is a key man in a lot of uh, yes. in a lot of projects. <laughs> right.
1: Well, that's his demeanor. He was so approachable and so low key. He stayed after the yes. presentation and he hung around. He let kids run around with him and let let people ask him all kinds of questions. Very mm-hmm. accessible, very down to earth, uh, very gifted communicator. But you could tell he's one of those guys that he probably does a million things that nobody knows about, but you know, right. keeps everything together and keeps everything going and. I was fascinated uh, to learn about his his involvement with the hubble 's the deep fields um, and yes it, uh-huh. he explained to me that how that imaging works, and just patient and and articulate and intelligent and truly a remarkable man i mean to have uh, yes he is. I, I think it 's like God has his saints in certain places <laughs> keeping keeping a, a divine eye on the cosmos, if you will, for our benefit in some sense, uh-huh. but, uh, just, he radiates grace and professionalism. And it was such a joy, even briefly just to work with him. We can begin mm-hmm. by you just informally sharing, um, how you got into, uh, cosmology and astronomy you are an astrophysicist correct is that okay that's right so you're not you're not you don't dabble in cosmology so much you're more of the physical observationalist correct
0: yes so the um well to to go way back i'm i'm uh kind of an east tennessee hillbilly from the smoky mountains Uh and uh grew up in a, a small farm uh technically it's a farm anyway we raised cattle uh, that was my sister's and my project. That was all the money we earned before um, started getting summer jobs during college. Was uh, raising cattle, and um, uh, but it's you know mostly mostly forest. Uh, the uh, farm uh, juts up against the Smoky Mountains National Park. There's actually a border hmm. uh, a borderline trail. Uh, between mom and dad's uh, property and the national park. There. Okay. And so it's a great dark sky location. Yeah. Uh, we've got the pasture out there and uh, mom and dad would take us out every now and then and uh, get the uh, unfold the space blanket out there, which I didn't think about the uh, space connections of it at the time <laughs> and <clears throat> would uh, lay back out with a uh, thermos of uh, hot chocolate or so, and just uh, stargazing. And they would point out things to us. And I would, I would say that that got me my first my, my first start, my first introduction. Both of those are redundant. Uh, my real introduction to it, uh, to the night sky. Uh, but I don't know that I had really seriously at that point as a kid thought about being an astronomer. Um, it really came in more when I was in college. And I was, when I got to college, I went to Rhodes College, a uh, little liberal arts school in Memphis, and I had wanted to double major, physics and Russian. Wow. And uh, I thought it would be, kind of, it'd be really kind of neat to double major in those and maybe go into the CIA and study the Soviet nuclear program. Uh-huh. Well, the trouble was that physics and Russian, the introductory classes, were the same days, the same hours, freshman year. Oh. And I had to pick one or the other.
1: So it was not yet on that career choice. It
0: was, well, I, I, <laughs> I still toyed with the idea of doing the foreign language uh, as the primary, but I, I kind of realized that after, if I went through and majored in Russian, I would come out of it being able to speak Russian probably pretty fluently uh, and nearly as well as 200 million Russian peasants. So what exactly am I bringing to it? What's the value added part that I'm, that I'm contributing here that they can't do aside from speaking English. Right. Um, so I, and I, I really, I think at that point saw myself more as a, as a scientist, um, than as a, uh, than as a translator or a linguist. Although I really love that. Uh, I loved all of that stuff there. Uh, a liberal arts college was just the ideal place for me. I, uh, tell you the truth, my worst subject, my hardest subject is math. Hmm. And my second hardest subject is physics. So (laughs) (laughs) guess what I go into? What uh, are you doing, Tim? (laughs) Yeah, my my best subjects are um, history, foreign language. um, I, I enjoy just a whole lot of other stuff too. So anyway, that sometimes makes it a little hard to focus and concentrate. But I, re- I really do enjoy astronomy and astrophysics. Uh, so at the Rhodes College Physics Department, uh, our professors were mostly astronomers. And uh, the head of the department, the department, uh, former department chairman, he was on the verge of retirement, Jack, uh, uh, Jack Taylor, uh, is a, was, he died now, as a solar astronomer. Mm. and an atmospheric guy and he had been the professor for all of the other professors in the department they had been his students classes of 59 and 60 and they became the next generation of professors and i had all of them but anyway so we had our own observatory uh, i did my senior project on uh, on stars and we got to study the solar corona they'd taken a team of students out to see the big uh, solar eclipse in hawaii in 1991 i believe it mm. was uh, the seniors and juniors got to go. We we freshmen and sophomores didn't, but we got to analyze the data later. So that really got me started in astronomy. And when I went to graduate school, University of Pittsburgh, I had um, looked at astronomy, but they, they didn't have any openings in the research teams there. And so I went into particle physics, didn't really do all that well in it, didn't get picked up on the grant, and used that as a chance to you know, when in looking around for another research team, astronomy had an opening, went to space telescope and just found my niche right then. Yeah. And it's perfect. It's for somebody who, uh, likes to be very visual. It's astronomy is great because in a, in a sense I get paid to look at the pretty pictures. Now, of course, there's a lot of the analysis and and that's where, Mm -hmm. that's where really the work comes in, Mm -hmm. but you can sit back and you can look at, um, like these pictures where we found that weird gravitational lens. Those pictures came down from the Hubble. Uh, Probably somebody at the Space Telescope Science Institute had looked over them just to make sure that they they looked halfway decent. And uh, they're sent through this automated pipeline of, of processing on the computers and sent on to us. So when I looked at them, I was, if not the very first person to lay eyes on them, it was the first person to look at them in any detail. Mm. And you're seeing things that nobody else has seen before. These are these deep um, uh, images, these long exposures of, a, you know, some random little corner of the cosmos. Wow. And, and to realize that all of these little blobs here and there are galaxies, which each of which may contain half a trillion stars, perhaps. Wow. And of all the stars and all the planets that are on those, if there is life, even, you know, alien bacteria or something like that, uh, if there is anything else out there, you're looking at a few pixels across that contain all of that in it. That's amazing. And you're the only person in the world who may have seen that.
1: That is fantastic.
0: And it's just this, it's, it gives you chills, you know, yes. your, your hair stands on end sometimes.
1: Yes, yes, yes. You're sharing your story here reminds me of a story uh, that I read for the research in our book that uh, featured Edwin Hubble when he was uh, showing his plates from the Mount Wilson Observatory, of course, his, the, the black and white negatives of all the galaxies and things that he had been studying, looking for variable stars and nebulae, um, that that he showed these photographic plates to uh, Edith Sitwell, who was an English poet who happened to be in the United States, or he was over there or something, and he she must uh-huh. have been here and she these these were the these were things that you know as you say that hubble was one of the first to see these through the mount wilson observatory but he shows her the plates and her response is how terrifying as you say you know the, the goosebumps <laughs> of of looking at these things like we were some of the first human beings to lay eyes on these things and then just to contemplate the magnanimity the enormous scale that is condensed down into these pinpoints and pixels it's, it's amazing. That
0: reminds me of. Um, do you know this painting? And I'm I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the, the artist's oh. name, but it is um, 1860s or 70s, and the name is Pegwell Bay. Hmm. And I'm I'm actually I'm at my computer. Can look this up. Uh, it has that same kind of a sense of um, of uh, kind of. A, oh, okay, here we go. Uh, it's at the uh, Tate Collection in, in England. Uh, Recollection of October 5th, 1858, Pegwell Bay, Kent.
1: Hmm. And
0: it's by William Dice, D-Y-C-E. It's a seascape, all right? And you're looking at um, uh, the tide is out at the seashore. You've got the uh, the cliffs there on the, um, uh, let's see, Kent. So that's going to be on the, on the English Channel side. You've got these cliffs coming up, probably those chalk cliffs. Uh, then you have the... Uh, Uh, shells and things and it's people out looks like they're collecting shells all right and but there's this kind of a a sense of foreboding in a way of maybe not foreboding of uneasiness and you see up in the sky you see a comet very faintly uh, uh, painted up there if you're if you're not looking for it you might even miss it and what I've read about this is is that there's this sense of unease with this concept of the vastness of space and the deepness of time. You have the time, the geologic time in the represented in the cliffs, which was just starting to be uh, understood by geologists. Then you have um, uh, the deep time of astronomy there with this comment, you know, how many thousands of years since it had come by the previous time.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, And you have uh, uh, you have the, as I'm told, they're not collecting seashells. They're too far out for that. As the tides there, they're collecting fossil shells. Mm. And so this sense of, all right, what is this? You know, how do we interpret this here? Uh, all of that put into and and, the, and it's the artist's family who are depicted in it, and they're looking off to the side outside the frame, mm. where out towards the sea. Then, um, it's an interesting painting. By that, you know, regardless of how you want to interpret. Uh, the artist 's work, but he 's starting to be confronted with these concepts of of deep time in
1: a yeah way. yeah,
0: uh, and here we 're with astronomy our, our time and space are tied together. the farther away we look, the farther back in time we see and so if you light travels at one light year of distance per year of time, uh, so we 've always got to remember that a light year is is uh, time, and i oh, 'm sorry that I just messed it up that a light year is distance. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at something, which is one light year away, you're seeing it the way it used to look one year ago. Right. If you look at something 10 light years away, you're seeing it the way it looked 10 years ago. Uh, The nearest star system to us, Alpha Centauri is just a little over four light years away. Mm. And so we see it the way it looked a little over four years ago, which is all right. That's on a human scale. That's not bad. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then you look at something which is a thousand light years away. And if you're looking at something which is uh, like with quasars, these uh, 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 really, for the most part, no longer even exist. So we're looking at them maybe a billion or a few billion light years away. Mm. And we're seeing them the way they looked many billions of years ago. uh, When the universe itself was very young and – uh, we can see that the universe has changed. We're looking back to the nearly the beginning of the universe. We can see very yeah. close to it, in, in, uh, as far as the scale, go, the scale goes. Uh, and so, as far as debates between young and old Earth and universe itself, uh, uh, when I you know, when I've talked to people who are who are young Earth people, you know, I could I could present all the ways in which all right, now. Here's how we here's how the, uh, the laws in which uh, radioactive decay works, how we can do dating of rocks and things on the earth, or here's how light travel times and how we can see the age of the universe. But to tell you the truth, though, all of that relies on a metaphysical um, assumption that these laws of nature that we're, that we're using are, are running continuously. And so I can't – there is no actual way to prove it if you don't – if you say that, well, look, God could have created them in that fashion. Uh, you know, with mm. the light having traveled, uh, appearing as if it had traveled from a distance, or rocks that are already with the amount of radioactive decay products there that make give them the appearance what? of this age. there is no way to tell the difference there. The big thing is, is whether you accept the idea that these laws are – Uh, permanent or at least very very long lasting over that time period or whether it it came into being with that appearance there i see and so at that point it's um you know if if somebody still believes that it is a young universe yeah fine i mean as long as you understand how we use these things uh with the assumption that it's an old universe and Mm -hmm. we can we can work out things that uh uh, we treat as being very consistent that way.
1: So you might say, uh, just just as an example, to make sure I'm following you correctly, yeah. for the sake of our listeners, if we talk about the, say, the physics at the very beginning of time, if you mm-hmm. will, um, it seems to be a consensus that there's a lot of different kinds of laws and physics that may be in operation beyond our purview. Um, and so maybe what you're saying seems to say is that that... These laws could possibly have been altered over time to their present state, that the laws that we have may have been slightly modified or different in the past. Is that correct or accurate? Uh,
0: yes and no. Uh, the We do have the idea that as you get back to, uh, and this is more what the uh, particle physicists and the cosmologists will deal with more so than I do, mm-hmm. uh, but making sure that i don't uh go beyond what i understand on it <clears throat> that uh yet we do think that you can have the say the the uh the fundamental forces of nature you have your gravitational force electromagnetic your strong and your weak nuclear forces those four there and then as we go back to near the beginning of the universe um when you have the universe being very compressed i mean you, you take a all right you take a you take a gas and you um uh, a container with a gas, and you expand it, well, what happens? Well, it, it cools off as it gets rarefied.
1: Mm-hmm. If you
0: compress it, it heats up, all right? And so the whole universe you can consider in a rough sense to be like that container. It's got a volume. It's got gas in it, uh, right now primarily hydrogen gas. Uh, but as you would go backwards in time, you've got a universe that, uh, because the universe is actually expanding, then if you go backwards in time, you're looking at it compressing, and your temperature goes up. And at some point, you get to a point where hydrogen itself is not uh, stable. It gets ionized. It becomes a plasma. As you get to earlier and earlier in the universe, then, you've got even higher temperatures and pressures, and uh, you don't even have protons and neutrons. You've got individual quarts probably running around. Mm-hmm. And if I go too much beyond that, then I will be sticking my foot in my mouth because it's been a while since I did <laughs> particle physics. Uh, but anyway, so but your four fundamental forces of nature – merge Mm -hmm. as you uh, look backwards in time to the very early moments. This is the idea of that grand unified theory of physics, which has been the kind of the Holy grail of the particle physicists and the cosmologists for many years now, Mm. the idea of a single underlying law. uh, I will crudely refer to it as kind of the law of a a single fundamental force, but I'm quite sure it's much more, uh, all-encompassing than that to them and the different forces that we experience in nature today are kind of specialized versions of it in a way they've kind mm-hmm. of frozen out as, as the universe has expanded mm-hmm. so just as we experience electric the electrostatic uh, force uh when you have your hair stand up on end well mine's short enough here that it's always on end <laughs> uh but if you get a if you um get a, a static charge on you and your arm hair stand up or your hair stands up they're repelling each other because you've got um i'm not sure which what you'd be rubbing on it might be either electrons or missing electrons uh and you'd have like an overall negative charge and they'd repel each other right that's mm-hmm. a static force mm-hmm. um and you also have magnetic forces right but the electric and the magnetic forces are two manifestations of the same fundamental more fundamental electromagnetic force, which was discovered a a century and a half ago when uh, when they were running current through wires and a moving electric charge generates the magnetic field Mm. and the charge by itself generates the static field and the combination of the two work together. And so by unifying these forces, we're getting to something more, we're getting to something deeper, more fundamental. Uh, So in a a way, I guess it depends on what you want to consider a law of nature then is the force the electric force a law or is the more fundamental version that it's a manifestation of Is that the law mm. and so at, at higher temperatures maybe you don't get the electric force in the way that we experience it but you still have this underlying thing which governs all of them
1: makes sense yeah i've gotcha.
0: so i think it gets to a bit of philosophy on what you consider laws and stuff Mm -hmm. like that there. But I like the philosophy of science Um, as to what certain things change and other things are going to be constant. We believe Mm -hmm. if you are a young earth creationist uh, I would, I would assume that you would think that it's not just a matter that there, the laws are changing in some naturalistic way, but there's divine intervention that is, Putting the laws into force now when they weren't before, you have much more. uh, I would assume that you would have a much more uh, 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 kind of instantaneous change there with a uh, without the continuity.
1: I see. I understand. In the way that
0: those of us working the field, uh, to the extent we look at laws changing, we're looking at things that are changes in a predictable way. Mm -hmm. The rules change, but they change according to a deeper rule.
1: I understand. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's like, uh, it reminds me of, um, are you familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis? Um, Mm -hmm. He wrote, uh, of course, a more philosophical work on miracles, which came out of a debate that he had with Elizabeth Anscombe that some Uh people say even Lewis himself didn't do so well. (laughs) So he, he decided to translate his philosophical work of miracles into Narnia. And so the lion, the witch in the wardrobe, uh, okay, the lion, the witch in the wardrobe is in part a refiguring of his argument in miracles, and so when you when you read about the witch who knows about mm-hmm. deep magic before the beginning right. of time aslan 's response is she doesn 't know about the deeper magic I remember that yes,, yes. and so the witch has this in lewis 's view, the witch has this limited perception of reality which she thinks she's got aslan but aslan mm-hmm. says that she doesn't have a concept of the underlying fundamental deeper reality and so yes. that's lewis's argument in miracles in a nutshell in in the line which in the wardrobe
0: you know one thing that i i've been pondering for several years and i would wanted to write an article on this with a uh, uh fellow i know who's a he's a minister and uh and a uh, seminary professor, <clears throat> we, we, were, we were talking about it. we never got around to it. Maybe someday I'll get back to it. <laughs> but you go back to, say, uh, Sir Isaac Newton, um, the last chapter, the last section of his Principia Mathematica, where he lays out the, uh, the laws of physics, his uh, three laws of motion mm-hmm. and the law of gravity. And it's, uh, it's a big, dense work there. And, of course, he wrote it in Latin. And he was using mostly geometric proofs, which are a little harder for us to follow than kind of going through with algebra today. Uh, but if you get to the last chapter, it's called his, in Latin, the General Scolium. And this is his taking the metaphysics side of it. He had, he had said rather famously, you know, why, uh, to, to people who had objected that, well, look, how can the Earth pull on the moon with the force of gravity if there's no direct contact people only had experience in understanding contact forces at that point i can push or pull on something but how can the earth pull on me invisibly without it? if i'm uh if the moon is up there and there's nothing touching between the two how can it pull on it mm. And he had famously declared, hypotheses non fingo. I'm not going to feign hypotheses in this. Uh, I'm just going to tell you how it works, not why it works. But in his general schooling, he gets into the the more of the philosophy and the theology of it as well. And because he's really working with laws of nature, uh, discovering laws of nature, then why are there laws? He says, well, you know, laws presume a lawgiver. And it gets into the theology of God as the lawgiver here, that uh, God's action is required to maintain the laws, that they wouldn't just go of a court of their own, that you have to have the divine intervention to maintain them. Hmm. Uh, Newton thought even more generally that the, the laws of nature were, in a sense imperfect, and uh, for example, you've got the Milky Way, which was not known to be a single galaxy out of many at the time it was the the galaxy was the universe Mm -hmm. uh, as as it was understood then. Mm -hmm. And there was a problem. Well, if everything in the universe has mass and everything with mass, emits a gravitational force on everything else with mass. And this force extends infinitely far away. Of course, it gets infinitely weak as it gets infinitely far away. But there's always a gravitational pull from every object on the universe, in the universe to every other object in the universe. Even if it's very, very weak and imperceptible to our, our ways, it is still there. Mm-hmm. If that's an attractive force and that's the only uh, strong long-range force in the universe – then shouldn't the universe just collapse in on itself? I mean, we can look out there, we can see all those stars, but they're spread out. Shouldn't they, given enough time, have gone clump like this together in the middle? That would be rather unfortunate. And Newton uh, considered this, and his idea was that divine intervention, direct divine intervention, miraculous intervention, was required to occasionally go back and kind of pull things back out where they were needed and so it wouldn't collapse. Uh, And he gets into a debate, um, I I don't think maybe literally arguing back and forth, but the two schools of thought, the Newtonian school of thought, and um, Godfrey Leibniz, um, but I'm thinking, yeah, actually, I guess guess it was more Leibniz, uh, may have taken the the idea that the laws themselves, God would have made the laws to be perfect to not require the the intervention. Mm -hmm. So you've got Newton himself, who I think by – Uh, some of the deists in uh, the next generation kind of looked to Newton as an inspiration for a universe, a clockwork universe that can run itself. But Newton himself was not uh, like that at all. Uh, He believed not only in miracles, but in the the necessity of miracles. So anyway, I've had this kind of wondered about this. You've got direct testimony of miracles in the old and in the new Testament as well. Hmm. Um, uh, Even if you might think of the, First parts of Genesis, if uh, you might interpret them more um, uh, more allegorically in some ways. You know, kind of go back and forth on that uh, for for uh, first two chapters of Genesis myself. It's still telling us that God is doing this, right? Right. And in the New Testament, it is direct testimony where we we take this really as history as well. That this is this is God uh, directly intervening. Well, in that sense, is a miracle, could you define it as, the suspension of the natural law? Mm -hmm. That God is intervening in a way that the natural law would not have done on its own. And if that's the case, then, uh, how does does that always work? Does God kind of physically reach in with a kind of, uh, you know, manifestation of a hand and pull things around or what? One thing I thought is, though, if you get quantum mechanics now quantum mechanics you can get people who get all kind of uh mystical and i'll put the scare quotes there <laughs> in ways where it's uh you know the, the kind of um religionless spiritualism where uh and that they, they'll kind of if they if they're a little bit science-minded they'll kind of turn to quantum mechanics for a sense of well look anything can happen right quantum mechanics says so. That's yeah. not what quantum mechanics says uh there, there are Many things that can happen, but there's a, we can cal- calculate probabilities of them as well. Mm-hmm. And we have Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And for those who are unfamiliar with it, uh, Heisenberg had shown that in the simplest case, let's say you have an electron, a particle of any kind, and it's moving along. Okay. If you want to know where it is and how fast it's moving, uh, really we're talking about its position and its momentum, its mass times its velocity. But for simplicity here, I'll talk about its, uh, its, its motion and its speed. If you, uh, you can know both of those, you can measure them. I mean, I, I can take a big object, I can look at an airplane moving, I can measure where it is and how fast it's moving, fine. But as you get down, if you increase your precision, we've always got uncertainty in every measurement we make, mm-hmm. okay? Now, if I want to decrease the uncertainty uh, but I'm kind of holding my hands apart and I get them closer and closer together and this is that my the distance between my hands is the uncertainty in your measurement of position so where is it well if I get out a ruler I can mark things down to a a 16th of an inch or a good one 32nd of an inch maybe a 64th of an inch but even then beyond that I've got some width in the ink printed on the on the ruler and i can't tell well you know how far is it on one side or the other of that Mm -hmm. so there's a limit to how close you can sit how close you can read that position uh you can get a a microscope and you can get smaller and smaller still but we get the the wave nature of light will prevent us from getting uh uh, from measuring position to a distance smaller than the wavelength of light itself or to you know some fraction of that so we can use an electron microscope, which gets us even shorter wavelengths, the wavelength of the electrons themselves, and we can get down smaller still and so on. But we're still having this uncertainty. We're just shrinking it. Mm-hmm. And what Heisenberg says is that if you were to reduce your uncertainty in the position, then at a certain point, let's say you have a, a, a very precise measurement of the velocity or the momentum, really. Um, if you get your position uncertainty down smaller than a certain amount, then every uh, improvement in the in the precision on, on position you'll get then from then on will come at the cost of worsening your understanding of the velocity. You'll have a larger mm-hmm. uncertainty of that. Mm. The proof of this takes some math, which again was my weak point, but at least I can get through this part here. Well, anyway, and there are other, other versions of it, time and energy, for example, or another pair, Heisenberg pairs. But what this tells you is that we will always have a measurement error on everything we do. There is a mm. limit to how much not only can we practically measure, but how much it's possible conceivably to measure. There are some things that are truly unknowable.
1: If I uh, just want to interject here, just yeah. as a thought, what you're saying here, um, in regards to the, the idea of... God, Newton, and law, mm-hmm. the deism would just have it set up to be the way it is uh, without divine intervention. The, the whole idea of miraculous right. uh, to a deistic theology is is unnecessary baggage, if you will, metaphysically, philosoph- yes. philosophically. Yes. But would it be conceivable to say, you say uh, a suspension of the laws that we know, um, might it be also... Not necessarily a suspension, but a revelation of a greater underlying law. Would that be compatible?
0: With? So that's, okay, so, um, so two things then. <clears throat> so one is my, my um, the idea that I'd like to get on to sometime is how if you take the uncertainty principle, which in a, in a basic way tells us that there is a limit to how much, how precisely we can know Measurements of things mm-hmm. position vol- uh, momentum, uh, time, scale vol- uh, energy, and so on, and at the same time we have uh, uh, you 've heard of chaos theory yes okay, so and uh, one of the ideas in chaos theory is that uh, what are called nonlinear systems, and that means that well, if you've got uh, we can take a, a pendulum, for example. Uh, if we know the initial conditions, we, we start the pendulum and we we bring the uh, the bob over to some you know 30 degrees off off plumb, and we uh, at a certain time it is exactly that position and then we let go, and it swings back and forth. Okay, now we understand the laws of physics well enough. This is very easy to calculate for any time in the future. Where will that pendulum be? Meaning, what angle will it be uh, uh, at? Right. Okay, but the thing is, is that because we have an uncertainty in measuring the initial conditions, that uncertainty propagates through our prediction of where it will be at some time in the future. Mm. And the, uh, the crazy thing is, even for some, this is, this is in the freshman physics class, we cover the pendulum. But we always take this, uh, this approximation that it's making a very small swing, you know, like less than 10 degrees, like a grandfather clock would do. Uh-huh. And that's because if we get larger than that, it turns out the, the equations, we've got trigonometry in there, we usually wind up taking approximations to these. Well, the real one, when we put it in the full way, even just with a, I forget if we got a sine or a, co- depending on how we, we set it up, it's a, maybe a cosine there. But if we've got a little wiggle room in where it started off, then so many swings into the future, so many seconds or minutes or hours or days or years in the future, it could be where we have no idea where it's going to be at that moment. Hmm. And again, you've got to say at a particular moment in time, because that uncertainty is nonlinear. It it increases more as you go on in time. In fact, you can see simulations online where you have a – because, again, we can calculate if we know precisely. Uh, so you can simulate differences of like one one-thousandth in the initial angle of the pendulum. Mm-hmm. And you see within seconds that if you start it off at a wide angle, I mean, if you start it off really close to the bottom, it, it doesn't deviate much. But if you take it where it's almost upside down, then within a couple of three seconds, it's unpredictable. I mean, you just wow. – it is – and because it swings back and forth – then it's not like you have, well, it's between this angle and that angle. It's completely unknowable Wow! after a certain amount of time. Now, that's an, that's an extreme case there, but you think about weather. This is why we have, we can't do weather forecasting with any real precision past like 10 days, and it's only been in not only our lifetimes, it's only been in the last, what, 20 years or so that 10 days has been a feasible thing, right? Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. wife is still skeptical that 10 uh, You know, tomorrow's forecast is going to be right. we've got a friend who's the meteorologist here. (laughs) Uh, His wife says, that. oh, don't worry. I tease him about that as well, too. Uh But that's because to know the weather in the future, you've got to know. Ultimately, you need to know the position, the momentum, and all these other properties of every molecule in the air. Now, we can't do that. We've got limited measurements. We've got a little thermometer here. We've got a weather balloon over there. You don't have a fraction of the information you'd need to go and, and ru- truly predict the weather off to a year in advance. And you so, know, I don't mean climate, a- I mean individual weather. Will it rain
1: today? Right. And that's interesting, Tim, because you think about how many times you and I in a lifetime uh, have seen a TV weather forecast. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and meteorologists are so good usually, and you get to trust them and they're there when the tornadoes are coming and they're giving you heat advisories and traffic and you get used to them. I love our meteorologists here in uh, Texas, David Finfrock, Rick Mitchell on uh, NBC affiliate here. They're really good Uh when it comes to storms. And you you grow into this idea. It's almost like a condition. Well, these meteorologists know what's going to happen next weekend they know what's going to happen tomorrow and it's the bigger picture I'm trying to get at here is that, that that science in some way and as you being in this discipline can speak to this that science it's sort of at the popular level is disseminated to the extent that we get this impression well, we've got telescopes we've got satellites we've got radars we've got cell phones einstein figured out figured out uh, you know the, the the equivalency of mass and energy uh we we mm-hmm. do quantum mechanics stuff look at the you know, look at your microwave and cell phone blah 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 science has figured it all out. And it, it, then, you, then you add that to, to, to Laplace and his, his idea that with the right amount of mathematics, he, can, he doesn't need God. And it seems like in the popular mind, and the, 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 the popular myth is that science can, is this all-encompassing sort of epistemology or mechanism by, by which we can explain, know, and understand reality with a great deal of precision. Uh, in in some Mm -hmm. sense it becomes a sort of all-encompassing totalitarian authority oh the meteorologists know oh the astronomers know the astrophysics got it all figured out everybody all the scientists will just defer to them do you do you find that to be true in in the between what you know where you're working versus the the sort of the myth and the popular imagination about what science can actually tell us
0: uh i think i find two extremes i find uh people who think that we don't really understand anything (laughs) and 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 a lot of it is expressed with people who are so skeptical about what the weather report is going to be for tomorrow i mean there's where we there's where we hit a science that everybody is familiar with every day right you know the top of the hour your local meteorologist comes on and he says all right we got a 30 percent chance of rain and then through the afternoon and so on And he's been calculating. He's got—if he's an actual meteorologist—he's got a degree in a—it's—it's a field of physics, really, um, with atmospheric sciences. And he's got to understand how the gas laws work and all of this stuff. Then, but again, we've got to deal with limited limited data, and then the computational ability. I mean, the computer can chug through the numbers at least, but we still got limits on what that can do, right? So, when he says there's a 30 percent chance of rain, and it rains, I will. Gently uh, tease my wife on this here. She is not sneaking up behind me, no, but she's in the next room. But anyway, her idea is, well, look, it rained, and he said there was a thirty percent chance. He was wrong. Well, what the thirty percent chance means is that out of the the previous times that the weather conditions have been the way they are right now, thirty percent of the time it rained in the afternoon. And so it's always, there's always that uncertainty, which is stated right there. Yeah. Well, what if he said it was a 10% chance and it rained and we'd probably say, oh, I didn't bring my umbrella because he said it was only a 10% chance and he was wrong. Well, he told you the probability, yeah. <laughs> which is a quantification of our ignorance.
1: So America. Heisenberg in a way is in <clears throat> every one of our weather forecasts we've ever seen.
0: <laughs> there you go, right, and and not even in a way that's necessarily conscious, right? But if we tried to take that weather forecast beyond a certain amount of time, uh, your your listeners may have heard of the so-called butterfly effect, right? Yes, that, yeah, uh, yeah. This is the really the first understanding of chaos theory that running these computer simulations back. I think this was like forty years ago now, uh, maybe more than that. That the amount a current of air equivalent to the flap of the wings of a butterfly
1: mm.
0: could Change the weather from calm to a tornado a continent away in the space of a week or something like that. And it's not because that current of air builds up into it, but that current of air deflects a different current of air. And that one goes on to affect another one, and that goes on mm. to affect another one, and so on. In ways that, you see, no meteorological measurement could have gone out and found where every butterfly was and see if they were flapping the wings or not. And it's not just butterflies doing it. It's like, you know, a leaf falls or whatever, right? Uh Because we just can't measure all of that. And so we can't carry it through. And even if we could, we would have an uncertainty on the measurement. Uh Well, anyway, to, to kind of put this all together, this idea I have is running around the back of my mind that if we couple, what Heisenberg tells us about our, limits to our ability to measure. And we couple that with the chaos theory, uh, nonlinear systems, which propagate through um little uncertainties into bigger uncertainties, mm-hmm. then there are many ways in which you could have divine intervention that we could never even see a suspension of the laws of nature. Because if we're going down to even like the quantum level where this little Particle jiggled over in a certain way, but you know, quantum mechanics says that maybe it will do that. You know, so many times out of ten, right? Mm-hmm. But that worked in that way, and then over here, somewhere else, something else went went in a way that was just right, and then the effects of all these things could propagate together to create something um, that is much, a much bigger effect. In which case, no law of nature was really broken. But see, God knows what needs to be done when. Mm -hmm. And so he could do this over here and that over there and never actually have all of a sudden the law of gravity is repealed for a moment. It could be something much more subtle, but still just as much divine intervention in a way that doesn't suspend the laws of nature.
1: Right. It's like uh, I, I as you're saying this, Tim, I'm thinking of Jesus and his dialogues with people who either tried to trap him or question him or really weren't interested in what he was saying except to, to get him into oh, trouble or something. Right. But right. he would always speak, he, you know, he would say that, that, that uh, I speak in parables so that they may not understand. So he's, he's, he's deliberately concealing things from people who aren't interested in doing anything but trying to catch him in something. And, mm-hmm. and I, I sometimes think, and this is just my own brain thinking on this, that sometimes I think that people who are antagonistic to the idea of God intervening or supernaturally or whatever or sustaining or, or his, his divine superintendence let 's call it that people mm-hmm. that are hostile to these things, God speaks to them in a kind of uh, physical paradigm and parable, and so so the, the very nature of nature is seems to be veiled even though I say obviously a lot of non christian non religious people have made a lot of wonderful discoveries about the universe. But it seems also that you could argue that God does speak to us in parable through nature. Uh, I think it's as as Ecclesiastes says that that God has put eternity in our hearts, but man will not find out from beginning to end all that God has done. What you're saying reminds me of Ecclesiastes. I think that's Ecclesiastes chapter three. Um, I'll have
0: to uh, – afterwards I'll have to – if you email me that, I want to write that down and look that up because I had not remembered that line. Yeah. And that's, that's one I want to to ponder over a bit. Yeah. I, I've thought more of the ones that are ways that are very overt, like uh, Psalm 19, which yes. is one of my favorites. I wanted to do a, a calligraphy art project. I've started it and haven't continued for many years. Uh, that would have it, you know, the heavens declare God's glory, uh, uh, his handiwork uh, and the sun. What is it? The sun running through its courses and so on. Yeah. But it, it's sort of a, you know, here's the structure of the universe, and this is God's handiwork right there. Mm. Uh, and Paul, um, I'm trying to think when Paul says that even he's talking more, I'm trying to think if he's talking more about human nature or if he's talking about nature outside of man nature, I forget which, that even the pagans see this. Mm. And they they see some of what the, the divine plan yeah, is. Yeah, Romans Romans
1: that. one. I think you're you're referring to okay. that that, uh, <clears throat> that God has revealed His invisible attributes to everyone through what He has created, uh, which yeah. is Romans one. And then Paul also in uh, in uh, when he's talking about the resurrection in the resurrection chapter first Corinthians fifteen, he's saying that uh, you know star differs from star. In glory, trying to, to make an analogy between our earthly bodies and and the resurrected bodies that we have, um, trying to use uh-huh. uh, earthly metaphors for for uh, you know heavenly things. As Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he marvels at Nicodemus's unbelief. He says, "Look, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe them, how can you believe heavenly things?" And <laughs> and, and so this, there, there's this idea that that beginning with creation, look, I have revealed myself in creation, and my revelation in creation is sufficient. That's what Paul's saying in Romans one that, that all stand accountable before God because of the physical world in which we stand, we see His invisible attributes um, and and that creation speaks, um, but it does so in parable and metaphor and yes and, and it's kind of a a veiled revelation, if that makes any sense that, that we see but only in part
0: Yes, yes, we actually have to right we we have to. We have to discover. We have to interpret. We have to um, work our way through the complexities of what it actually means. Uh, I'm trying to think it was um, Galileo who had talked about that God has given us two books. Right, right. Uh, of Revelation, the book of Scripture and the book of nature. And both of these are things that we can read read. Uh, read the book of scripture and we we have to interpret that and we have the book of nature which we observe and we we test and we uh, uh we have to interpret mm. in this physical mm-hmm. way as well and we're seeing god's handiworking. how is not um right uh not whether god put it together because we certainly believe he yeah. did but how by by what means is do, right. do these things work here this is also something which um in looking and again, it it is uh, it can be such a thrill to look at these photographs of the of the very very distant universe and the very very far uh, stretches of time you're seeing, and to uh, to think about what what laws govern this, how they work. Uh, there's there's an idea. That, well, there's not right now. I don't think a century and a half ago there had certainly been an idea that the laws of nature were mm-hmm. pretty well understood. And it was just a matter of kind of the mopping up the details and so on. And it was around a little after that time that quantum mechanics came up and upended yeah. <laughs> our, our uh, kind of uh, tower of Babel sort of confidence in our own abilities to, to uh, that we had, we had erased all the mysteries. Mm. My thinking is, is that we're, we're never going to have a full understanding. I don't think it would be possible for us to have a full understanding of the workings of nature mm. in all, in all the details, because I think we're going to see what we, while we may get to kind of an underlying grand unified theory, uh, perhaps we're still going to wind up with how things interact with each other. Other things that will be still taking, uh, Physicists, astronomers, chemists, and the like, generation after generation. I think we'll we will we will get we'll always be improving our understanding, but I don't think we'll ever get to a full understanding. Mm. Not in this lifetime, mm. anyway. Um, which just I think it goes to show you how small we are. It's it's fantastic what our what our minds are able to understand. But it is humbling to know how much more there still is out there that we don't yet know.
1: On our next episode, Tim will be sharing with us more about his exciting and unusual discovery. We hope and pray this has been and will continue to be an encouragement to you. There is no need to worry as believers that cutting edge science is in any way a threat to our confession of Jesus as Lord. And of course, you do not have to be an astrophysicist to enjoy the gift of the heavens. They unceasingly declare the glory of the one who loves us and gave himself for us. If God is for us, if the one who spun the stars and galaxies with his fingers has given us his favor, Who can possibly be against us? So stay tuned for part two with Christian and astrophysicist Dr. Tim Hamilton on our next episode of Good Heavens.
0: Wayne and Dan have been discussing issues concerning the cosmos, creation, and Christ since 2017. Everything from strange stars, weird moons, to oddball galaxies, and how it all points to the glory of God. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.